History has no like example of a like greatness to these Parisians storming heaven. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Those words, of course, belong to Karl Marx, speaking of the Paris Commune, a radical experiment in popular democracy and socialist transformation brought about in the ruins of war 150 years ago this week. The Commune lasted only 72 days, but every day was a political earthquake. Its tremors were felt throughout the world, and the Commune inspired countless thousands of radicals for generations afterwards. And it is the afterlifes of the Commune that we'll be talking about mostly today. The Commune, as it was taken up especially by socialists here in Britain, as well as what those Communards who survived went and what they did. Hi, I'm Laura Forster. I'm a lecturer in 19th century British history at Durham University. And I'm a historian of the Commune, but specifically I'm quite interested in how the Commune sort of influenced or kind of resonated in Britain. Um, And more broadly, I'm interested in sort of transnational political um, exchanges and the way in which sort of socialist or opposition politics uh, in the 19th century, um, how these kind of ideas were forged um, and and exchanged and developed in, in various contexts. Brilliant. Well, we're going to be talking, I think, largely about the commune, the commune's legacy and, uh, you know, its reception in Britain, I think, especially. But I think we should just chat a little bit about the context first, because, of course, not, not everyone listening to this will know very much or maybe even anything at all about the Paris commune itself. Um, or, or maybe even what its significance might be. So maybe, is there a quick potted history of the commune? It's a terribly tall order, but... Um... <laughs> It is tricky. I feel like it's been uh, argued over so much that, uh, you know, it's it, it feels sort of a, a nebulous thing, but maybe that's part of its quality, which I guess we'll, we'll talk about later. But I think, I mean, you know, most basically a commune is a form of local administration in France. Um, and, you know, at various different points in French history, we, we hear this term a commune. But thinking of the Paris Commune of 1871, you know, it's really um, sort of uh, quite a radical experiment in government. So, you know, the previous year you have the Franco-Prussian War, uh, the siege of Paris, where the city of Paris was besieged for almost five months, um, surrounded by the Prussian army. Um, and within that time, the French government, the national government, leaves Paris and departs to Tours. Um, so Paris, in some ways, sort of starts this kind of, um, not quite self-government, but at the time of like administrating dispersal of food, uh, rationing, seeing to uh, the sort of recruitment of the National Guard, etc. during the siege that really kind of falls to the city administration. So you get this real sense of Paris kind of self-governing um, and sort of rehearsing all these ways in which kind of municipal self-government might work. And that's quite a radical government because of the various sort of radical threads in Paris and the different clubs um, and sort of neighbourhood associations that have, that have grown up around that time. So um, the commune, yeah, sort of is, it, we, when we refer to the Paris commune, we're talking about these 72 days in the spring of 1871. Um, in which Paris sort of ruled itself, set up its own uh, democratically elected government, um, which passed, you know, a huge number, considering its short time, of, of quite radical measures. Um, and uh, but in May 1871, following a, a very bloody sort of week-long civil war, uh, the commune was brutally put down, um, and, and thousands of, of communards were killed. So uh, that's a super brief version, I think. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's excellent. That's really good. Um, I, I, you mentioned there the sort of um, the sort of intellectual and political ferment, these kind of radical traditions that the commune drew on um, within Paris. Maybe you could just tell us because one of the things that that when we've talked about the commune on this show before many years ago now with with, with Kristen Ross, um, it, you know, it's remarkable the sheer diversity and. I guess, kind of intellectual fecundity of the commune. So, can you uh, can you give us a sense just of 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 how broad and diverse the sort of the intellectual and political currents that ran into the commune were? Um, yeah, I mean, the, as you say, it's kind of hugely sort of. I mean, I think to borrow Kristen Ross's term, it's this sort of laboratory of all these different political traditions, ideas, experiments. So you've got, I, I suppose, the sort of big names of, of kind of um, political philosophers or traditions that are drawn upon those of Proudhon, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, so that's thinking more kind of in an anarchist tradition. Um, you've got Auguste uh, Blanqui, who uh, is, is, is um, 
kind of thought it was quite a more militant socialist in a sense, interested in the in the often violent redistribution of wealth. Um, of course, you've got uh, Jacobins, other types of socialists, a lot of different Republican traditions, some drawing more from the kind of Republicanism of the French Revolution, but others thinking, um, you know, on, on different kind of scales and thinking a lot about municipal types of um, of uh, independence and autonomy. So, um, yeah, massively kind of broad church, I guess, of supporters. And that's, again, I think what makes the, the commune so resonant and so it's, it's made its memory so sort of um, generative, politically generative, because there's so much we can draw from it, so many different lessons we can take and people have taken um, at different points. I um I wanted to because we'll come on to to what happens after the the semin sanglante, which is this kind of horror you know horrifying actually you read accounts of it this incredibly bloody um you know recapturing of the city um but, but I just wanted to to mention because one of the things that's been on my mind um over the course of the past couple of years is uh, uh this event that takes place and it takes place it's it's you know under the aegis of or kind of the, the main sponsor of it is uh, an artist called Gustave Courbet um, and he he agitates for the pulling down of the Vendôme column this big monument um to well really to militarism and war um you know, and Courbet is pretty pretty um forthright about this is a really wonderful drawing are you there's there's i think a photo of these guys standing around with the rubble of it which is not very prepossessing but but there's this amazing drawing that's in the news like it's in the news sheets uh, of the column falling and it just seems to me that that this this question about like public space and uh you know the symbols of war and uh you know and this kind of active you know, civic concern about the things that we memorialize and the parts of our history um, that, that we erect monuments to is obviously a little bit older than roads must fall. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is something I think where you find the, the, the kind of current resonances of the commune come through really strongly. I think that's something that's so exciting about the commune. You know, when I first kind of came across it and began studying it, this, this um, the, the sort of use and um, claiming of public space and the ways in which sort of... Um, uh, this real kind of attention to the um, yeah the, the city of Paris as a city made for people and that should work for people and that should be lived in by people by ordinary people um, as you say you know um, uh, uh, Colbert um, has this great when he when he it was his sort of idea really to tear down the, the column um, in uh, in May 1871 and he said you know this is a monument devoid of all artistic value and it, and it perpetuates the idea <laughs> of war and conquest and you know so he was like it's ugly and it's represents something terrible so we definitely <laughs> don't need that um and you know it was, as you say it was erected by napoleon the first to commemorate the battle of austerlitz and was very much this kind of symbol of an, an imperial dynasty so um i think that's an, uh, you know in some ways encapsulate encapsulates uh, or is an important symbol of that aspect of the commune but also more broadly i think the whole kind of experiment of the commune um you know part of its program and, and, and the decrees issues was to uh, a lot of the the kind of workshops and buildings that had either been left empty by uh, people fleeing Paris during the siege um, or just were kind of out of the, the, the sort of wealthier of Paris who kind of ran these these places had sort of retreated um, for fear of the commune. The commune said we, we, we uh, they issued a decree to reopen those and to, to have workers take them over as cooperatives and they were they were run as, as workers cooperatives. Um, which, you know, is, is this quite magical idea of like the city kind of that where, you know, the poor of Paris being dispelled from the city, partly through, you know, house modernization, which was that great, this massive program of renewal um, a, a decade previously, which, you know, changed the, the streets, etc. Um, the, the, the communal are saying, you know, look, we're going to, we're the, the poor of Paris, the ordinary people are, are taking the streets back. And as you say, that, that feels very modern, you know, it feels as though, um, if we can connect with that today and thinking about trying to protect and promote public spaces with the increasing encroachment of pseudo public sort of private security, um, you know, ostensibly public spaces. So, um, you know, and, and, and also during the commune, Louise Michel, after they kind of, um, she sort of led this charge to take over the, the gardens of the Tuileries Paris and she put on concerts there, you know, and they raised money for widows of of fallen communal and so you can just imagine like how exciting it must be to take over these sort of royal you know and kind of imperial palaces in the city and you know have like have a laugh have these sort of festivals so i think that that idea of public space and reclaiming the city for ordinary prisons is a really powerful part of the commune and you're absolutely right that really resonates today definitely so after the commune falls and after the the bloody week the week of blood some insanglant 
three and a half thousand communard refugees, communards and their families come to Britain. Why? Why here? Is it just is it just proximity? Is is the British asylum policy unusual at the time? Well, on the one hand, as you say, proximity, of course, is a factor. But in some ways, you know, Britain, um, if for those reasons can be seen, it was sort of less desirable in a sense. I mean, a lot of communal went to, others went to Belgium and Switzerland, partly because of the language, right? So, you know, it's in some ways easier to find a sense of community um, with other French speakers. So, but Britain is very attractive, um, precisely to say, because of the asylum policy. So until 1905, we have the Alien, Aliens Act in Britain, which is kind of instigated by the the influx of um, uh, Jewish refugees arriving after the pogroms in Russia. Britain starts to stringently kind of um, police immigration, which, as we know, obviously has only continued to get worse and more aggressive. But up until 1905, it was a real source of kind of British pride, really, that it had this liberal asylum policy and nobody would be turned away. So while in other uh, countries where exiles went, there was discussions about, you know, the government thinking about whether they should deport communal etc in britain there was there was some kind of sensationalized discussion of that but really that the government never considered deporting communal because as i say it was a source of liberal pride that um britain welcomes all and is a defender of freedom in, in all its context so i mean that that figure is quite um quite quite a rough estimate i mean there's this uh, this history called paul martinez who wrote a thesis about the commune in the 19 uh, the late 70s um, and he did some of these kind of minute calculations to try and work out some of these figures. But yeah, he's sort of settled on around kind of uh, 1,500 uh, adult male refugees, about 600 women and about 1,200 children. So, and that's across the 1870s. So they don't all arrive at one time, you know, it's a little bit messier. Yeah, so not not an insignificant number. Um, enough actually for, in, in the 1870s, Karl Marx kind of quite dramatically declares that London's overrun with refugees, you know. Um, I'm not sure if he was reveling in that or not, probably a bit of both. So um, quite a few communal come to London, thousands more go elsewhere. About 10,000 were deported to New Caledonia, the French penal colony in the Pacific. And of course, the the, the figure of, of communal killed has been pretty hotly contested, but, you know, it's probably between about 10,000 and sort of 20,000 uh, communal killed by the the French government during um, the bloody week, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I think as, 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 as we said at the beginning, a lot of what I've looked at is this community of communards in Britain and then also more broadly the ways in which the fact that these communards came to Britain also kind of influenced this mythology of the commune that grew up in, in Britain, and as it did elsewhere, of course, during this period when the, the memory of the commune is sort of internationalising and the dispersal of, of communards um, outside of France obviously helps that process. Lisa Gray, who's a communar who wrote this kind of authoritative account of the commune soon after it, um, said in the beginning, you know, that the, the, the end of the commune sort of threw across its borders a part of the, the national wealth of France and kind of dispersed these peoples, um, many of whom came to, to Britain, mostly to London, but a few elsewhere. Maybe some of us have a sense of kind of mid-late Victorian London. It is in some ways a political centre. As, as you say, there are these sporadic, but, you know, not very serious um, uh, uh, concerns about you know the, these these continual influx of political refugees and agitators, but also you know I mean this is a London that's also crisscrossed by secret policemen, Prussian, Russian, uh, 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 French, presumably. Um, there's a, a wonderful anecdote I think of um, is it is it Max Bear who's walking along in, in Soho and sees sees is it is it a, in a shop window or something like that? Yeah, so he sees uh, in a shop window this kind of makeshift bookshop that's kind of been laid out. This in Fitzrovia, north of, of Oxford Street in London, um, and he kind of sees this uh, this this house that has all these kind of pamphlets lying around, and they've got some old Chartist pamphlets. They've got stuff about French republicanism. Um, they've got a copy of you know the the, the Civil War in France, of course, Karl Marx's uh, tract on the Commune, and you get this sense of like this really kind of intergenerational, quite thriving political. Um, sort of community. I mean, I think what's interesting about London at this time is it is, as you say, this kind of exile world of London, um, I guess, in many ways. Uh, it's it's uh, Adolphe Smith, who's uh, he, he fought in the commune, but he's actually from Leeds. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, he was, you know, uh, an English communal as the French police spies who came to London called him. Um, and he write, wrote this this book about London in this period. And he, he refers to the exile world of London, which I think is really spot on because you've got, you know, existing French communities who have arrived um, uh, exiles from the Second Empire and also from 1848. They're more in the kind of lower, the southern part of Soho. 
But in this period, you've got the Communa. Then in 1878, you know, Bismarck um, issues their anti-socialist laws in Germany to get a lot of German socialists arriving. A little bit later, you get the anarchist exile communities of the sort of 1890s and a little bit later. So you have this really thriving in, in, in the Fitzrovia area in particular, where I've, I've looked at a lot. You've got the kind of Scandinavian Communist Club. You've got the Jewish Anarchist Club. You've got the German Anarchist Club. And they're all using the same pubs, you know, and the upstairs rooms of different pubs is, you know, oh, we've got the the, the, the Irish kind of land nationalizers in tonight. And then we've got the communists <laughs> coming after, you know. And, <laughs> and you get this really, you know, this this quite, you know, when I think about it, sometimes I, I probably over-romanticize this kind of utopian um sort of cross-pollination of ideas, but there absolutely were kind of links being made, friendships being forged. Um, in, and I like, I, I came across this term, kind of cafe friendships that a historian called Scott Hain has used in the, in the French context more in a different period, but he talks about the idea of kind of this intimate anonymity of within particular neighbourhoods. You've got people who are seeing the same faces, they're chatting at the pub, they're meeting at the, the grocery store. And it's not necessarily that they're part of the same formal organisations or that they might even know each other's kind of names or credentials or whatever, but that they they form part of this kind of um, associational culture. And I think that's a massively important part of the commune while it's in power in Paris and a massively important part of the lives of communes um, in Britain and the ways in which they interact with um, all these other kind of exiles. And also British radicals, you know, in the Fitzroy area, you've got a lot of secularists, old chartists, uh, free thinkers who are hanging out in that part of town. So they're also using these same kind of spaces, um, and, and, and later, as we as uh, as you get more commemorations of the commune, all these different groups are kind of coming together. Um, and as you say, of course, in the mix uh, is a lot of police spies. Uh, the French police um, sent a lot of spies to keep tabs on the uh, uh, commune exile. The British government weren't quite as bothered, really, to be honest. But the the French government certainly. You know, they, they make really fun reading. You know, there's these different kind of characters, these different spies, some of who are, you know, you're, you're being very dramatic. They're kind of imagining all sorts of things. Others who, you know, give you just the, the oh, I followed this fellow, he went in a pub and met this guy, looked a bit dodgy, you know. It, it, they're, they're a great source. But yeah, absolutely, a huge number of, of police spies. So quite a kind of vibrant uh area yeah i i i was, it just made me think there's a prussian um secret police report on karl marx about his uh lifestyle which is uh, <laughs> really really sort of unpleasant and and clearly disgusted um yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> karl marx's yeah pub crawls yeah. around that time as well pretty notorious <laughs> um I, I i wonder like i so you mentioned there that there are these kind of successive waves of refugees and you don't need to dwell on it too long but i'm just curious um because i i get the sense from reading your work that there's a little bit of tension, I mean, maybe there's productive relationships as well, but a little bit of tension between those earlier generations, the sort of 1848ers um, and then the later communards. Is, this a, is, is, it a, is there an ideological, is there a kind of political tension there? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's when the communards first kind of arrive, a lot of the sort of societies that have been set up or the existing societies of, of um, the, the existing French communities, particularly, as you say, the 1848ers, uh, and some of those who came after the coup of 1851 um, and later in 1856 have these kind of um, more sort of mutual aid societies. Um, and some of those are, you know, really important for the communal when they first arrive in terms of finding lodgings, finding jobs um, and being able to, you know, speak French, eat French food. Um, so that's really important as that kind of initial lifeline. But after that, after the sort of the crisis, I guess, of the, when that, that initial arrival, so 1871, 72, you do see this kind of, sort of quite decided split really in, in terms of the sort of political political communities of the commune move northwards, uh, as I mentioned, so sort of north of um, uh, Oxford Street. Um, and that's partly, I mean, certainly I think a lot of the commune are, it's generational as well. So the, the, a lot of the communal in Britain are kind of youngish, so sort of, you know, in their 30s. Um, and a lot of the previous French generations, you know, you can really imagine them being there kind of, oh, you know, we know what it's like. <laughs> we've been here years. Like, oh, you want to talk about, you know, radical refugees? Yeah, we've done it. You know, and the communists are like, what are you talking about? You know, this is a whole different kettle of fish. You don't understand. You weren't there. Man. <laughs> uh, so there's definitely some of that. But, but in, 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 you know, more seriously, of course, the, the, the commune think of some of those older generations refugees as being more conservative with their sort of republicanism. Um, and less kind of imaginative or expansive with the types of um, uh, socialism and sort of ideas they're perpetuating. I also think the commune has a is, is definitely in some ways more explicitly internationalist um, 
So the, the, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some kind of, there's ideological divides. I mean, there were a couple of communists actually who had experienced multiple exiles in Britain, you know, Pierre uh, Vissignier, he, he'd uh, been involved in 1848, he'd been in exile in the 1850s, he went back to France fought in the commune and, and returned again. So it's not kind of an absolute line, but there's definitely um, a distinction. And that distinction is made by other observers. So the British press and British radicals recognise that there's these kind of slightly, dis- the, the commune form a slightly distinct political community. And then it's geographically separated a little bit sort of by Oxford Street, basically. There's a there's a line you quote somewhere, of, um, it's, it's, so, it's slightly sort of derisory of... of uh... Uh, mocking Louise Michel and the Soho Revolution. Um, but it, it did strike me. I mean, one of the, the places that's mentioned is the Blue Posts, the one on, um, is it Newcomb Street? Yeah, and, Newman uh, Street. Yeah. Newman Street, yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to go and have to raise a glass to, to exiled communards once we can go back to pubs again. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm actually writing a, a small, short piece about um, the, that pub and, and about its role <laughs> in this community. Because I think, yeah, I mean, it's a Sammy Smith's now, actually. But it's um, it really was a this kind of again that box. You've got the upstairs room, which you can still go in. Now it's just like the restaurant bits. You should go up there and have some chips and think about the meetings that took place. Um, but yeah, it's just in, in, particularly in that street. So that's on um, uh, Newman Street and, and Newman Passage, which is the little kind of alleyway really off there, was where the communard set up a soup kitchen, um, and that was where you know you could, any kind of communard refugee could uh, go for a cheap meal. Um, uh, you know, even in that kind of the most the sort of depths of exile when some were really struggling to find work and um, places to live, etc. So, yeah, it's a, it's a radical corner around there. <laughs> let's um, let's talk a bit about the, the reception then, the reception of the commune outside of France. And I, I, I'm curious because like there seem to me to be these these sort of two, these sort of twin elements to, to its reception. Um, one is like there's the very famous line from Marx, uh, I think it's in a letter about these Parisians storming heaven. And there is that element, I think, in some of the, the reception that you trace uh, of just kind of uh, astonishment and excitement at the possibility um, uh, of self-government and this kind of, very, you know, this, this very radical experiment in, in self-government erupting in Paris. And then there's also the sort of, I think, <laughs> maybe these days like <laughs> feels more familiar story of um, sort of betrayal and calumny and slander and defeat. Does one predominate and then the other or do they sort of sit alongside each other? It's a good question. I mean, I think, I suppose it depends like who, who you're talking about in terms of the, the responder, I suppose. So I think within, and also there's the kind of the public and private face of it, you know, Karl Marx, for example, publicly, obviously in the civil war in France talks about how the commune was this, you know, incredible experiment. Privately, he was like, it, he didn't really think it would, it, it could really succeed. I mean, he saw the seeds of some really great things in it, but he wasn't sure how successful it could be. So definitely there is that kind of, um, the sort of um, solidarity with movements and, and, and that sense of, you know, this is something great. And then the, the sort of reservations about it. But definitely within, um, uh, for, for, for the kind of communards themselves in London, a lot of that, they were really caught up with, you know, rehashing old debates about the commune, who was right, who was wrong, who's more radical, who's not radical. And so some of that we can recognise. <laughs> feels really familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Getting caught up in the, you know, um, just rehashing those sort of, um, the, the, the sort of why things went wrong. But I do think that's in the more immediate, in, in the 1870s. And in the 1870s in Britain, of course, you know, we're not in the full kind of socialist revival yet. So a lot of people who are writing in support of the commune are kind of this mixed bag of, of, of radicals. You've got the English positivists who actually wrote, I think, one of the most coherent and, you know, really kind of celebratory accounts of the commune as it was happening, even before Marx did, you know, the Civil War in France wasn't published until after the fall of the commune. Partly because I think Marx kind of wanted to see how, how things would fall a little bit, um, you know, how it would turn out. But you've also got other kind of um, different um, Republican groups, um, different kind of uh, local club radicals. Um, interestingly, though, you know, English Republican movement, which had had a bit of a sort of mini heyday just prior to the commune because, you know, Victoria was in mourning and there was a bit of public sentiment in favour of kind of Republican sentiment. But they sort of allied with the new Third Republic after the fall of Napoleon III in, in September 1870, and they'd kind of pinned their, themselves to that. So then they were afraid that by supporting the commune, they would associate republicanism with this kind of red, fiery revolution. So they sort of, Charles Bradlaugh and his gang kind of steered, steered clear a little bit. But so you've got this, this mixed bag of radicals who I think are really taking different lessons from the commune. I think that idea of excitement is, is right, because there was a lot of discussion about, you know, 
um this you know it was a kind of a disastrous end it was very you know this, this sort of tragedy of the commune but it was also that you know the commune wasn't just one thing and i think sometimes when we reflect on it we think oh you know it could only be appealing to kind of revolutionary you know reds and we don't have those in britain because we're not revolutionary but actually there was tons of lessons about municipal democracy about direct democracy um even kind of christian socialists were taking this idea of of, of, of the commune or the commune as kind of that's what jesus would do um uh, there's, there's there's all these different lessons you can take from about syndicalism um about as we talk about public spaces so i think there's an there, even in the 1870s there is some excitement about some of those elements and what, what threads you could pull um but but i think you're right in saying that once you get after a lot of the communal exiles have returned to France, 1880, there's an amnesty by the French government. There you see the sort of mythology of the commune shifting slightly because it's no longer so attached to kind of living peoples in Britain. It's, it can be taken up by this kind of new socialist movement um, and celebrated both as a kind of noble defeat, but also very much as a victory, a victory of ideas in that it helped it to, to spark socialism in, in Europe and also that it that it, it, it sort of showed that possibility, as you say. So I think that there was a political excitement about it. It wasn't all sort of martyrdom. I mean, in France and elsewhere, the story is slightly different. Um, but I think in, in Britain, you do see quite celebratory um, understandings of the commune. Right, you, you, you quote at one point um, in, in a paper of yours, that a line from, from Connolly about developing this sort of, that for, for, for a movement to be truly a mass movement, um, it requires the development of this sort of popular sense of kind of a, a shared history and one that's sort of celebrated in feasts and songs and, and commemorations. And without that, um, you know, you're, you're looking at an intellectual position much more than a, a socialist movement. And, and, and it really struck me, and it struck me, you know, I, I just wonder if there's a really impu- interesting impulse here um, to construct effectively a secular kind of radical equivalent to this sort of structure of annual festivals that you get in you know, Catholicism or something like that, that there's a commemorative structure to the year that sort of binds meaning into the lives of people who are you know, in that movement. And it's remarkable that, that actually when you think about it, there's, there's really no contemporary equivalent, uh, right? We, we don't have it today. There, there's, there's, when we get the endless drip feed of news, which I don't think is quite the same mm-hmm. thing, but, but like that sense of, of having sort of some, some sort of structure to the year that, that, that you know, that, that you're, you're actively keeping alive the memory, um, and, uh, you know, and it gives meaning to, to your political project. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, the majority of exiles return to France after the amnesty, not all. Some stay in, in Britain. Um, Jules Manier, who's this, uh, he's a, a journalist and, and he's, he lived on the Old Kent Road and managed to make his own wine there. <laughs> God knows how, but he obviously <laughs> thought he was doing all right. So he stuck around, you know, well into the 1890s uh, and was mates with George Bernard Shaw, actually. Um, but anyway, so a few stuck around, but a lot of them went home. And so I think then, in a way, what you see is, British socialist movement actually really the the, the, the commune as the symbol and then vive la commune as a sort of slogan was really powerful and had a lot of utility because it was a way of you know connecting to this broader internationalist movement um it was sort of vague enough that you could kind of pin your red flag to it and and it connected you but you could still have it, it was sort of far away enough that it, it, it the the sort of divisions and splits within the commune weren't kind of um affecting the sort of intellectual kind of discussions as much um, in British socialism. It was more this kind of symbol of like, look, we have this revolutionary conviction um, and this is part of our heritage. And partly because the commune, the communard had, had, had lived, or some communard had lived in Britain, meant that the British socialists could sort of claim that heritage as their own. And, and a lot of socialists at that time did talk about the, the um, commemorations of the commune. So um, annually, uh, March the 18th was celebrated and, and some thought of that as a kind of Easter festival. Um, and I think by the time you get to the 1890s, you know, um, we have May Day in Britain, which, you know, we no longer celebrate. We don't have as a proper kind of workers' day, but in the, in, in the late Victorian Edwardian period and through to the 20th century, we did. Um, and that was inaugurated in 1890 after, you know, the Chicago um, anarchists and other kind of international events. But prior to that and even concurrent to that, the commune was really the one event each year that you could rely on socialists from all different shades, all different types of kind of, you know, they could put aside their factional squabbles. And this was a really important day to, as I say, to sort of celebrate British socialism in a way that felt less contentious because they didn't have to argue as much about their own <laughs> intellectual divisions. And you could kind of gather behind the red flag, you know, it has this powerful, um, powerful symbolism. So, yeah, I think 
and, and, and as I say, the description of it as a sort of Easter rebirth and a festival, I think it's a really interesting one. And it shows how the year for, for these sort of fledgling socialists was punctuated by, look, we need to create a, a set of, of sort of symbols of recognizable and powerful um, occasions. Um, in France, in some ways, it was the May commemoration, so that the, the fall of the commune that, that became the dominant commemoration still is. And so that, in some ways, was heavier on the kind of mar- the tone of martyrdom a little bit because it was the fall of the commune. Um, but in Britain, I think, yeah, the, the celebrations in some ways got more rowdy. I mean, that's not to say in France, they did a lot of really good banqueting, you know, some good rowdy celebrations. But it's interesting, I think, that the, the, the biggest celebration in France was, was always May. Um, and in Britain, in the late Victorian period, it was, it was the March. So it did have the sense of kind of festival, which, I mean, again, is, is partly borrowed from... Um, European ideas and traditions, socialist and revolutionary traditions, but was also, you know, Chartists used to have kind of Chartist festivals and these camps where they'd camp out on moors for three days and Chartists would bring their families and it would be this celebratory atmosphere. So there was drawing on some older radical traditions as well as inaugurating new ones. And I think that's um, why the sort of socialist revival is a really interesting moment, the ways in which socialists were sort of, um, you know, grabbing different different kind of um parts of their lineage and kind of putting together this mythology. And, and that was a powerful thing for, for socialists at that time. I mean, it's super interesting, the, you know, the British reception, there's, I guess, a slightly different reception in England and Scotland. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious if you have a sense, and maybe the Irish example actually is also really interestingly difficult here, like the, the, the way in which the, the commune is taken up kind of or, or kind of interacts differently with sort of national predispositions um, and, and the way it kind of sits alongside sort of national political histories and the way that, that, that sort of, you know, English socialists or Scottish socialists are, are conceiving of themselves, or, you know, not even socialists really at the time that, that as you say, that, that, um, that, you know, certainly very early in the 1870s, you're getting this kind of odd in-between period. Um, the, the reason I ask this question is that it, it sort of, it strikes me that, you know, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the way in which, uh, you know, there's this kind of enduring sense these days about oh well you know like you know obviously the french go and have their revolutions but you know british people that don't really they're not so so given to kind of continental um, yeah. uh, manias and uh, uh things like that it just doesn't seem clearly true to me but um you know i mean talk about killing kings we certainly got there first um, yeah. but, <laughs> um but, but you know i mean i i wonder you know how how, how the kind of you know whether the importation of the commune sits easily alongside sort of um national conceptions uh, of political freedom political liberty and political struggle and whether or whether there's just even this early there's just a, a much stronger sense of the international rather than sort of the national political history being important for, for radicals I, I think it's it, they, it sits more comfortably than we might think i think you know there's kind of an old historiography of sort of british socialism that you know it's very much its own trajectory it's, it's exceptional the sort of british exceptionalism which we hear so much about, um, you know, that it was kind of impervious to continental revolutionary kind of mania, as you say. But obviously, that you know, that's not the case. And the commune had real sort of utility in that because you, there was so much in it, because it was this laboratory of political ideas, you know, because it was concerned with municipal revolution, it was concerned with kind of urban sort of renewal, it was concerned with um, syndicalism and trade unionism. It, you know, it had a lot in there for a lot of British socialists to take from it. But I think in these different national contexts, Again, you see it sits in some ways fairly comfortably, partly because I think the commune itself was very much concerned with the local and the global. Um, and I think that's why its legacy has been so enduring. Royden Harrison, had, who's a labour historian in the 60s and 70s, had this great line where he said that the commune was full of a warm patriotism for the neighbourhood. It's about neighbourhood politics, it's about the local, but it connects, in, 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 you know, it has this idea of connecting these kind of local communes all together on this kind of international scale. So in a way, it sort of skips some of that sort of um, nationalism in a, in a sense. I mean, that's not to say, obviously, what you see quite clearly when the commune are in London and the way in which different socialists in, in the British context, they all have their national chauvinisms, you know, there's, there's this sense of, yeah, the commune's a really important symbol, but we need to sort of translate it in a kind of more English way for an English socialist because they are more, uh, they're more responsive to different types of socialism. So there's a recognition that there's some differences, but the commune sits I mean, in Ireland, for example, as you say, initially, because of the professed atheism of the commune, you know, when they they uh, executed the Archbishop of Paris, you know, Ireland was pretty hostile in many ways to the commune. But 
even in Ireland, by the time you get into the 1880s and 1890s, the anniversary of the commune becomes this really important um, date on the calendar. And it's partly because it attracts this broader church. The, 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 the anniversary celebrations could attract a broad church. So at those discussions, when discussing the commune in those contexts, you could discuss, you know, local, regional or national concerns with this more of a broad church of attendees. So it helped to connect, I think, and in some ways reflect on a kind of on national past by using the commune as this symbol of internationalism. And you see in London um, connections being made by John Burns, for example, between you know, the work of the Paris Commune and the work of the London County Council, mm. which in some ways seems, you know, maybe, all right, John Burns got a few ideas about the station, <laughs> like thinking. But, you know, but that's the kind of real thing that he's, he's suggesting that because the Commune um, was so much concerned with the autonomy of like ruling a city by the, uh, for the people, by the people, and not so interested in the kind of uh, the sort of uh, this idea of a national government, that he really saw um, saw some of those parallels there. It, it felt very familiar, and I don't know. I don't know whether it's just something that extends across um, all, all kind of radical movements. It's just the you know I think there are these kind of British handbills that you quote about um, uh, you know or, or British socialists realizing. Um, uh, how the press had traduced and smeared the commune, and and it just seems to me to be like one of the historical invariants of socialist movements is to complain about the way in which the press kind of treat, treats this stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But, but in a way, that's why, like that's part of the use of anything happening. It seems like so that you can get people together to be like you know and here we are again we have to have these meetings because we've been smeared and smeared and you know and i think it's always re-refuting those old wrestlers it's quite a powerful unifier <laughs> if nothing else um so i i, I maybe we can come on i think because the, the the question of the intellectual legacy of the commune is one that's really interesting to me and obviously it's a, a strong thread in, in this question of its its reception in britain but i, I wonder if we should, should first just just think a little bit about the the way that that communards themselves thought about the the rise and fall of the commune um and i wonder if you have a sense of, of what what kind of ideas what kind of reflections what you know the way in which you know various groups of communards in exile understood their 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 defeat it's interesting that there's certainly you know certain practical things that was discussed a lot about the sort of failure like oh we should have kind of captured the reserves of the bank of france you know when we had the chance these kind of things that which did take up a lot of airtime, you know, for discussions of the minute, yeah. <laughs> particular things that somebody should have done but didn't do. Uh, quite a few, you know, communards did go on after the amnesty, um, you know, and they were returned to, to France, did go on to become quite important in, in French politics. And Julia Nichols has written quite a lot about, you know, French revolutionary thought after the commune, because traditionally there's this idea that after the commune, you know, all, you know, the revolutionary kind of um, democratic, republican sort of socialism is, is dead in the water a bit, you know, the French um, government becomes more conservative in, in the initial governments of the Third Republic. They build the Sacre Coeur literally as a monument to the, the restoral of, of moral order, right, on the site where the commune started with, it, with the capturing of the canons in Montmartre. So traditionally there's been like this idea that after the commune it's a real blow for, for sort of revolutionary politics. But Julian Nichols shows that, you know, actually the commune was a really important symbol of like actually the possibilities that were still available to them and the, the kind of rebuilding of, of, of revolutionary kind of in such a trajectory. So far from being sort of dead, it was kind of quite, the commune became an important sort of focal point for, for, for sort of building, you know, fresh utopias, I guess. And, and again, I think that's why the commune is so interesting, partly because of how individual communes are thought about it or their intellectual ideas, but I think maybe more so because of the sort of the action of it, like the, the experiment of it, you know, under the commune, it only lasted for 72 days, but still the, 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 the government of the commune managed to pass various degrees, you know, they separate decrees, they, they separated church and state, um, they uh, abolished night work in bakeries, um, they granted pensions to unmarried companions of National Guardsmen, so they kind of um, were trying to undermine the institution of marriage a little bit, they, they postponed debt obligations, they, they returned all the workmen's tools and items that had been pawned during the siege by desperate regions. You know, and, and, and they, they had um, free schooling for, that, that was, you know, secular, all these, you know, really radical measures. And I think for a lot of communi in exile, you know, it was it was a real the blow of defeat kind of overtook them in, in, for those years in exile in a way. But actually, I think for other uh, observers elsewhere, they could see in, in this, in the activities, the action of the commune, like there was this, this radical excitement. So um, 
And I think that, you know, as I say in France, you know, various communal later do become important in, in subsequent socialist governments. Um, so these are, you know, these people are very much not sort of defeated outright. Um, but I think, yeah, there's something about the, the commune, it really enacted something, even for a short time, you know, and it really showed that sense of possibility. That's what I find exciting. In it. Do any of them become reactionaries? Do any of them move to the right? It's a good question. Actually, there's a few that sort of are less, become a little bit more kind of establishment figures. I mean, I mean, I think even, you know, some of the, the who, who had been um, uh, quite kind of um, uh, sensational at the time, you know, Henri Rochefort and, and others who uh, once back in France, I mean, yeah, they came not maybe not full on conservative, but certainly were yeah felt more establishment. I mean, that's not true of all. There's a, there's a few examples like that, but then others, you know, like Jean Alleman, who was a he uh, went on to found uh, the Socialist Revolutionary Workers Party, um, and of course, like others, you know, like Louise Michel ended up moving further to the left in, in a way, becoming you know much more anarchist in later life. So, but it's a real mixed bag, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was more who who maybe did go more conservative because. For some in the commune, again, another strand within it, there was a sense of sort of, um, you know, patriotism that could border on sort of chauvinism in the sense of something about Paris, but also that Paris was sort of the real France and, and the rest of the country is this kind of reactionary mob. And so in some ways, you, you could see elements that could possibly later bend to different, you know, machinations. I mean, it's interesting that this kind of trajectory that, that you, I mean, you mentioned, you know, I know you were interested in the sort of, kind of internationalist history of this stuff i mean obviously louise michelle is you know quite remarkable and she's exiled i think um by 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 the um by the french government she's uh you know in various sort of uh places she's in london for a while but she's also uh in the south pacific um she 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 seems to me to develop a a kind of very strong uh interest in sort of non-european political cultures is is that unusual or is 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 that a thread that runs through the commune during and after um i mean it's again a good question i think i mean she's i suppose what she very famously in a way is i mean louise michelle was um, a teacher prior to the commune quite radical progressive um during the commune she becomes a uh, part of the the women's union the union des femmes which um along with other kind of really key women in the commune um natalie lamel um, Elizabeth uh, Dmitriev, who is a Russian exile, um, you know, Audrey Leo, Paulie Mink, these really kind of, um, a lot of uh, women who are very involved with the kind of, um, uh, as I say, the women's union and also married to the elements within within the commune. And Louise Michelle, as, as many others, was part of the National Guard, you know, and fought in the barricades. And she famously is like, oh, I love the smell of gunpowder, you know, she's like, <laughs> she's mad for it. Um, and... But she, yeah, so she's deported to New Caledonia, um, which is the French penal colony. Um, and there she's uh, becomes, she befriends a lot of the um, uh, indigenous population there. Um, uh, the Kanak people who are um, uh, uh, obviously like, they're indigenous to, to New Caledonia and the French have been using it as this penal colony are sending thousands of, of, of criminals as, as they think of them. Um, but but Louise Michelle really takes an interest in Kanak legends and cosmology and languages. She learns the Kanak language, she, uh, um, you know, and, and befriends a lot of Kanak peoples. And um, and she kind of um, sides with them in 1878 as a Kanak revolt against the French um, colonial rule. Um, so she's very much um, interested and invested in, in, in kind of uh, the indigenous struggle against the French empire and other kind of European imperial powers. I mean, of course, some of her other um, colleagues are similarly, you know, as, as you said, there's a lot of internationalism in the commune. And part of what makes the commune quite, you know, sort of radical at the time is that there's all these different kind of exiles who are in Paris who are involved in the commune and who have kind of leadership positions within the commune government. So there isn't the same sort of um, strict kind of national uh, sort of stringency in, in some ways. But I don't know for sure in, in terms of how many, I mean, the commune also resonated quite strongly in places like Mexico and outside of Europe. Um, and this work being done at the minute, interesting work um, being done on this kind of idea of the global commune. So I think it will be really interesting to see what um, what comes out there and what kind of what historians are uncovering about that. Because absolutely, there's, there's a real, um, again, because of this local global nexus of the commune, which I think connects local struggles everywhere. And the kind of, it's not parochial. It's, it's, it's very much kind of, yeah, this is about neighborhoods. This is about ordinary people and ordinary streets, but they connect with, 
these ordinary peoples in ordinary streets all over the world in a sense. So that was the sort of dream of the commune, which I think was quite powerful in various places. We've touched a little on this already, but you know, and you, you mentioned John Burns and and uh, his fondness for the commune and uh, uh, his sort of rather playful invocation of it in in this this pamphlet on the early London County Council. I I, I wonder, like, it, it, you know, it, because it's an odd time, and I, I think one of the things that's visible in 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 your work is is you know the commune happens at this point of a kind of weird interregnum for kind of British working class movements. You know, the explicitly kind of you know, renaissance of socialism in Britain is a little bit later than the commune. So I, I wonder, is, is, you know, is, is that influence easily traced? Is it, is it significant on how British radicals conceptualise or reconceptualise their own politics in its, its wake? In some ways, it's not easily traced in a sense. I think that's why this idea of kind of uh, British exceptionalism and, and the sort of British socialism that is not revolutionary and is very distinct from kind of continental trends has become, has been such a kind of a pervasive idea in some ways in the study of this period. But I think that's precisely why I think looking at kind of uh, the communal exiles in Britain is is a really um, great way of showing the as as I talked about when we were thinking talking about Fitzrovia some of the vitality of these sort of more informal associational cultures. Um, it's a real uh, mark of obviously particularly in London but also in Edinburgh there's there's quite a kind of there's a, some communal exiles end up there and there's, there's similarly these kind of different associational cultures but I think that's a really important way to me to my mind you know as a historian more generally not just thinking about the commune but thinking about the way in which ideas uh, how we understand the kind of intellectual genealogies of any sort of um, kind of broadly sort of left movement is that, you know, obviously ideas don't move around on their own, you know, they're kind of, they're not impervious to their surroundings. So wherever we we have to find in some ways the sort of social life of these ideas and think about that when we're trying to understand how um, these sort of intellectual trajectories could be mapped. So I think um, in London, for example, you know, part of when I've been looking at the exiles of the commune is thinking about a few kind of, you find these individual friendships. So as, you know, John Burns, as I mentioned, was influenced by the commune because, you know, in uh, the early 1870s, he was an apprentice engineer in Battersea and, and Victor Delahaye, who was a communar, who was very much involved with syndicalism and the unions under the commune. Um, he was exiled and he was working there and they would go on jobs together in, in, in the southeast. Um, and that's where, you know, John Burns credits that with sort of that's where I first learned about socialism was just chatting, you know, while at work with this old French fella <laughs> who'd appeared, you know, and, and, and that's really, really important. And similarly, you know, I mentioned George Benature, you know, he befriended a couple of communists. I used to have singing lessons with one exile um, and they, you know, would have these kind of weird sort of singing lessons and then have, you know, chat about Proudhon. Uh, you know, George Bernard Shaw wasn't a huge fan of the commune in the sense that he thought, you know, they tried to do too much. We have to think a bit differently about it. But it was a really important part of his like development, his anarchist and sort of socialist ideas. Um, also, um, Alexander Thompson, who um, is was the kind of uh, along with Robert Blatchford, one of the kind of leaders of the Clarion movement in Britain, which is really thought of as like you know the most English of English socialisms. I guess you know you think of Blatchford and kind of jingoism and some of that sort of. Um, Merry England style socialism. But Alexander Thompson actually, um, he was born in Germany, but grew up in Paris. And during the commune, he was a kid and his his house was uh, overlooking, um, uh, you know, uh, I think he was in the seventh round, he's one overlooking um, various barricades. And he talks about, you know, when he's reminiscing about, he's like, oh yeah, our barricades, you know, at one point all these communists are running a house and one hid, hid hid under my bed. And he's really excited about this idea that, the commune heritage is part of his story as well. And when he becomes you know, involved in socialism later in life, when he's in the, in the UK and he starts, um, he's writing for the Manchester Guardian, he um, uh, t- finds in the, in the commune an idea about direct democracy. And Alexander Thompson becomes this big advocate for direct democracy for a referendum. Lol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, can't really talk about referendums seriously. You know. Anyway, um, and so um, he, he sees in the commune there's this, you know, that, that impulse for direct democracy is the most important thing to take from it. The commune didn't go far enough because, you know, we saw, you know, the elections and the ways of doing that slowed things down. So he really took that lesson from it. So through these kind of individual friendships or, or personal attachments, you get a sense of the legacies of the commune and the memory of the commune kind of radicalizing people beyond, you know, the sort of um, institutional 
record that is obviously most readily available to us. You know, in uh, Ernest Belfer Bats, another big socialist in Britain, who met uh, Communard Pascal Grousset at the, at the reading room of the British Museum. They chat about socialism. And, and all these socialists later, by the time we do get to the socialist revival of the 1880s, when they talk about their kind of own origin myths of, of how they became socialists, often this idea of, oh, you know, I had this personal interaction with an exile of the commune. And it's that personal thing that that really sort of sticks with them as part of their, the way they create their own mythologies. And I think that's so important when we talk about any kind of politics, particularly the politics of the left, is to be sensitive to the, the emotional resonance of these things, you know, and through friendships, through informal channels. That's how people in some ways are sort of radicalised. Um, you know, it's not, we can't get a sense of the full kind of political picture just through institutions. It struck me as interesting because I was thinking about, you know, one of the other sort of places of of, of kind of interaction or, or, or encounter is the British Museum Reading Room, um, where, you know, it, it gener- successive generations of uh, radical exiles, you know, Marx, uh, who there's a lovely poem by... Um, Ensensberger, where he talks about sort of uh, you know, no machine gun in in your prophet's hand under the green lamp in the British Museum, you know, breaking down. You know, it's really extraordinary. And, and you know, you have Lenin, you have um, you know, Sheila Fitzpatrick has been writing a bit about sort of Lenin in the British Museum recently. Um, you know, so there, there are these sort of generations of it. Uh, and you know, I was thinking about the way in which the 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 kind of formal work that's produced there has kind of heavy emphasis on like learning the lessons of defeat whereas the kind of account that you're giving about the sort of you know the the, the kind of lived transmission of these ideas is very much you is not solely about defeat but it's about kind of the, the the experience of the commune itself yeah and so i wonder i wonder if if there's a sense that you have you know that in the sagare's um preface to the history of the commune he talks about you know he really go you know he he, he castigates um, tellers of revolutionary myths are there are there myths that grow up around the commune oh absolutely of course but, i mean it wouldn't be a good revolution if you didn't have some myths you know like this is the stuff that keeps it going um you know there, there's all kinds of i mean and, and and some of the stories part of i think what makes the commune interesting beyond france is also of course just that the kind of good old-fashioned like a good tale of sort of um adventure you know and particularly you get stories of different communar um uh, again, Pascal Grousset, when he was trying to avoid capture in Paris, you know, dressed up as a woman and hid in a bakery and all these kind of, you know, stories of of, of, of once uh, uh, other communards who had uh, been deported to New Caledonia, uh, Henri Rochefort among them, managed to escape and they kind of sailed to San Francisco and then stole away on a boat here. And these kind of stories of adventure are, are, are a part of the commune, of course. But no, but, 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 but uh, really, I think those sort of myths or at least even if they're not kind of conscious myths, the way in which mythologies work, as we were just saying, is, you know, talking to somebody about the commune. If it happens at a formative time in your life, that's part of your um, your story of, 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 of coming to socialism. And that's quite a powerful kind of emotional thing that gets more kind of far-fetched with every retelling in a way. And I, and I do think that for the commune in London, you know, it was, it was a really rough time. Like a lot of them were living in poverty, struggling, you know, the English language skills for a lot of them weren't great, really, you know, finding it difficult. But that when you start looking for some of these kind of more in, informal connections and at the British Museum Reading Room is one, you do get a sense that, um, you know, people, of course, are making connections and that the commune um, uh, could be the symbol of defeat, but could also be the sense of possibility. And also, as I say, because for later socialists in Britain, they were like, you know, I, I met a real life communal. It kind of creates the sense of, you know, the communal were, were carriers of, of, of this kind of, Political excitement, even if it wasn't, even if the reality of it in the 1870s, there was, there was kind of mixed responses. Some people were kind of scathing. There was a lot. Later, it becomes part of this tale of how the commune kind of spread around around the world. And I think that is really important. I think Lisa Gray also peddled some of his own myths, I'm sure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't immune. And and he, you know, his, his book was translated by Eleanor Marx in the reading room of the British Museum. You know, she has some great, she writes some her memoirs about, you know, Iron people up in the museum, going out for a cigarette and hoping you kind of bump into someone, and all these sort of it feels very familiar. Hey, I do that in the British Library today. Yeah, <laughs> of course, exactly. It's all about who you meet in the water fountain, isn't it? You know, who you can come across. Um, yeah, Jules Valais, actually, the journalist of the Commune, writes about the British Museum reading room 
as like a, a little village and you, you chat to people in the aisles between seats, which you wouldn't really be allowed to do now, um, <laughs> as, if, as if bumping into them in a village street. And I think that's such a beautiful image, you know. And um, again, maybe I see I'm mythologizing right here myself. I'm like the romance of this kind of utopian internationalism. But but it's hard to it's hard to avoid, isn't it? It's hard to avoid this this yeah, this, this kind of you know because it's hard also if you're on the left not to feel somehow connected to it. And I, mean, I guess it's, it's sort of my last question for you, really. I mean, there, there is that question of of the way in which the sort of intellectual legacy of the commune, and particularly the way that you know its its defeat inspires various forms of thought about political practice over the course of um, you know the the period from from really 1870. Uh, until about 1917, and then there's of course this story about Lenin going out and dancing in the snow um, after after the Russian Revolution out endures the commune. Mm-hmm. Who knows whether it really happened? <laughs> um, but but is it fair to say I think like that the, the specifics of the commune were were for, for much of the 20th century sort of um, you know read as this sort of precursor to the more serious um, and more worked out and more in, you know important in some ways uh, uh, 1917. Revolution, and and I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, because I think it's it seems to me that in recent years there's been a kind of renaissance of interest, a sort of resurgence of interest in so the lessons of the commune, and as you say, you're quoting that Kristen Rothstein about the sort of laboratory of political um, imagination, experiment in political imagination. Does the turn towards the commune suggest something? Um, you know that that people are rediscovering something increasingly relevant today. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, of course, yeah, in the 20th century, uh, to an extent, obviously, as you, as you mentioned, the in 1917, and then, you know, uh, you got the Shanghai Commune in, in 1967, and other kind of uh, deliberate links with the Commune, which show how the Commune was sort of the beginning of something which, you know, the the Bolshevik regime or um, others would, would kind of put properly into practice. But I do think, and again, um, this, um, I'm kind of referring to Rodin Harrison, the, the, the British labor historian, and he's, he puts it quite well. I think he says that, you know, in some ways that the way in which the, the, the passing of, 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 he was writing, I think in 1971, so for the centenary, and he's saying actually the passing of 100 years um, has enhanced rather than diminished, um, you know, the, the, the prevalence of the commune. And he says in some ways, that's not that surprising because although um, it was initially thought of as like, as we just said, you know, this is the precursor to, to 1917. It says actually with the passing of more time, with some of the, the flaws and the kind of um, uh, uh, the fall and, and the kind of disillusionment with the, the Stalinist project, that the commune then reemerges actually as a way to sort of say, no, we, we need to go back to the commune to, to reimagine things that are better than its successes. So it almost flips perspective in a sense. And, and Kristen Ross says, um, which I think she's absolutely right, that, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, the commune is then sort of released from, on the one hand, it's kind of communist historiography and, and, it's, and their memory has been sort of trapped in this communist ideology. And it's similarly been sort of tried to be sort of trapped or trammelled into a kind of French Republican narrative. But after 89, it, it's sort of opened up to the sort of internationalist activist of, 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 of now. Um, and I do think um, that's really present. And, you know, obviously we saw during the Occupy movement and other times where, you know, really explicit references made between the kind of occupation of cities today and the occupation of Paris under the commune. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I do think that urban element of the commune, the way in which you know, the commune was this kind of reclamation of space, the way in which the commune took over buildings and, and palaces and, 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 and reinserted ordinary proletarians of Paris into the centre of Paris. I think that really resonates today, you know, as we think about how we keep our cities open for ordinary people. And, um, and you know, that feels... I mean, I don't want to say timeless that, you know, what, what does that mean? But it's, that's something from the commune, I think that is, is almost not so ideologically kind of aligned with a particular socialist or communist program, but it's something about a kind of popular people's movement to, to kind of live, work and kind of flourish within cities that are made for people, made for ordinary people that are not made for capital and for, for wealth. So that's something I think is a really lasting and exciting um, legacy of the commune. Viva la commune, Laura. <laughs> Thank you so much. Viva la commune, yeah. That's Thank it for this much. week. My thanks to Laura for a totally fascinating view of the afterlife of the commune. Uh, still very relevant, I think, today. And if you want to know more, do go over to the Navarra Media website where you can also hear a blast from the archive where Aaron and I talk with Kristen Ross on the political imaginary of the commune. My thanks to Laura Forster for a fascinating conversation. And 
Do stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast, like all the cornucopia of content you can get at Navarra Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to navarra.media support.